0: mm <laughs> Hey there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios. And on this show, we talk about a few things. One, identifying women in positions of leadership and specifically in the healthcare and health IT space to show more folks how they can get there and the different paths that people take. And also how complicated healthcare is in general. I often talk about healthcare being a 30,000 piece puzzle and we all kind of hold a piece to it. And so I like to have guests who can identify identify their expertise and share their knowledge with our listeners. So today, I want to welcome to the show, Amy Moy. And uh, full disclosure, Amy Moy and I have known each other for close to 20 years, although I can't say we have kept in touch this whole time. So I am really excited to have you on the show, Amy. If you could please take a moment to introduce yourself and what it is you're doing in your career at the moment.
1: Sure. Hi, Joy. It's so wonderful to see you and be reconnected. And I so appreciate the opportunity to join you on the podcast. So I'm Amy Moy. I'm co-CEO and Chief External Affairs Officer at an organization called Essential Access Health. And essential access is all about championing and promoting quality sexual and reproductive health care for all with a real health equity lens to make sure that anyone, regardless of their income, their race, their zip code, their health insurance status, their documentation status, or who they love, can get the essential sexual and reproductive health care that they want and they need with dignity and respect. So that is a passion of mine that I've been working on for my entire career and excited to be able to move our mission forward now as co-CEO and Chief External Affairs Officer, which also means that I oversee our political work, um, but more on the policy level, not electoral work, policy at the state and federal level as well as our strategic communications and public awareness campaigns. So it's great to be with you to talk about our work, especially at this really pivotal time when it comes to sexual and reproductive health.
0: Yeah, of course. Can you tell me more about where your services are provided? Is it uh, nationwide, or is it specific to certain states or areas?
1: So Essential Access Health is based in California. We have offices in Los Angeles and Berkeley in the Bay Area but our programs really extend uh, far beyond California. We have programs that include health center partnerships, primarily focused on distributing funds that we receive from the federal government. Federal government has a program called Title X, which is the federal family planning program that supports access to family planning services, which includes birth control, contraception, and STI prevention services for people with low incomes. So we have been a Title X grantee for the state of California since Title X was started over 50 years ago with strong bipartisan support, which is crazy. 50 years ago that happened and it's kind of uh, mind boggling to think 50 years later that that would not be possible with the makeup of, of our current Congress and where things are falling down in terms of the politicization of contraception. and. I'm sure we'll get into that maybe in a little bit. And also recently, we were awarded the Title 10 grant to partner with healthcare organizations across the state of Hawaii. So we are also now in partnership with 17 healthcare organizations in Hawaii to support Access to family planning services across the Hawaiian Islands for people with low incomes. We also have a provider training program, our Learning Exchange, where we train providers across the country, so from doctors, advanced practice clinicians, to health educators and medical assistants, in uh, best practices in the delivery of equitable and high quality sexual reproductive health care. And we also conduct clinical research when it comes to trying to test methods that are acceptable and effective for reducing risk of pregnancy. So different contraceptive methods as a member of the National Institute of Health Clinical Trials Network. And so we do conduct clinical trials in California, but it impacts the national market and audience. And we also have an STI Prevention Center where we introduce best practices in STI prevention in California and across The country as well. We have a real wide range of programs and services that do have touch points and a reach across the country with strong boots on the ground and, you know, real kind of touch points uh, day to day in California and
0: Hawaii. It seems like it's a perfect fit for you. And I'm saying that because, you know, you and I met in San Francisco, and one of my most vivid memories is learning about. It was right around the voting season and learning about the ballot where we had groups of women who were teaching each other, you know, how to vote. It's very intense in California with how much gets on the ballot and how much research is involved. And also at the time there was a march on Washington. And I remember, you know, that being a big part of what we were doing was traveling across the country to go to the Women's March in D.C. So can we kind of back up for a minute and talk about your career path and how it has guided you? Because I'm really happy to see where you've landed, but I want to, I want our listeners to know about where you've been and how you got here. Can you take some time to walk us through that journey? Sure. It's been... Both a personal and a professional
1: journey, I really got into the field of sexual and reproductive health from my personal experience. My personal experience started, like many of our experiences, start with our family and our family history. So, my mother is adopted, an only child, and my grandmother was not able to have children on her own, um, and had struggles with fertility. On the other end of the spectrum, my paternal grandmother, a Chinese immigrant, had 12 children. My father was the eldest of 12 children, born back in New York in the 1940s. And during my grandmother's reproductive years, contraception just wasn't available to her. As a low income immigrant, um, or as a, a woman who is an immigrant and low income, you know, we want to make sure we're who we are first and not um, categorized by, by other things. So, really, from that background, I saw from an early age how reproductive health access or our reproductive health and reproductive choices or even when they're not a choice, right? When you're not given a choice, how that really impacts our lives as humans and as women and how that impacts our families. And then fast forward to Amy as an 18-year-old, first year in university, had an unintended pregnancy and wanted to, you know, felt the right decision for me was to continue my education, stay in school. I was not ready to become a parent. So I had an abortion. And at that time, I was at Ithaca College in upstate New York. And my mom uh, had a close, very fortunate to have a close relationship with my mom that I try to emulate with my now teenage daughter. And my mom came and held my hand and I was able to access my abortion care with dignity and respect. It was affordable. And I vowed from then on that I was going to dedicate a good portion of my life. And it would be my dream to dedicate my career to helping to make sure that anyone who was in the same position as me would be able to make their own choice and that it would be a choice and and that they could feel supported in that choice, whether it be through policies, whether it be through the care that they were given. So um, that really propelled me then into my professional career that has started, you know, then in college in the late 90s. And I had an internship at a, the Planned Parenthood in my college town, a year long communications internship, I was a communications major. And I was also a women's studies minor. And then started to think, well, I don't really want a career in a space that at that time, particularly, you know, and for a still to you know to a certain extent now that would be judged based on appearance and so i with my kind of feminist awakening as well as my budding activism and deep commitment to reproductive justice thought well maybe i could have a career making good news like letting people know about their rights their access when it comes to reproductive health and so i was very lucky that Soon after I graduated from college, I was able to get a position at Planned Parenthood of New York City as a media relations associate, putting out press releases, increasing awareness about the different options that are available. Then emergency contraception was relatively new, as well as the campaign to have mifepristone, medication abortion uh, regimens approved by the FDA. So those are some of the things that were happening at that time. And then the Bush administration happened. George Bush was elected. We also then had a time where people were ringing uh, Planned Parenthood office phones off the hook. What can we do now? Because I think we had a time of complacency when it came to reproductive health. And as a young activist, I was starting to feel like I, in addition to increasing awareness, I wanted to take action and I wanted to support people taking action. So then I shifted roles and became a community organizer at Planned Parenthood of New York City, uh, working with college students and community members to take action to support reproductive freedom and, and access. And then also got excited about, well, if I want to have folks take action And I wanted to take action. I realized where a lot of the influence lied was in government and in policy. So then I kind of transitioned to also being the the lobbyist at Planned Parenthood of New York City with some wonderful mentors. And then I, where we met, Joy now about 20 years ago, moved out to California and worked at a, a Bay Area Planned Parenthood affiliate overseeing, you know, community organizing policy, as well as community education. So that had really kind of also then grounded and secured my career path that this is kind of where this is the issue that I was meant to to be in and continue because there was a perfect role for me when I was planning on moving out to California when my husband got into graduate school.
0: You were successful in the community organizing aspect of it because I am I'm I'm on the receiving end of that. And I know that it was possibly not a direct. I think we met through a women's group and we had people in common that we knew, which was really helpful, but there was a great organization around the time of getting volunteers and kind of infusing our action and activism in general. And honestly, that is a time that I continue to carry with me. It was very influential. So I just want to go on the record and say thank you because it has really meant and helped drive my career path and really giving me more information and education and just like understanding the importance of empowerment from different angles. And everything from understanding... I remember learning about like, okay, what are the policies around sex workers and understanding our anatomy and what is going on with like access to contraception or birth control and how many services Planned Parenthood provided to folks that are low income and how... And even being an escort, I remember like through you, I got to have the experience of being an escort at Planned Parenthood and really seeing that people were going in for reasons like getting a UTI checked, but getting harassed for other reasons from folks that were on the right and have really strong feelings towards the organization. And I know that you must have also experienced some backlash from association from that just because of the divisiveness of our political system and, you know, the the beliefs that we're, we're trying to navigate. Can you, would you mind speaking to that? Because I think that that is something people don't necessarily take into account. Like you took on this very active role in the community, but that doesn't come without consequences. Can you talk about that for a moment? Sure, it's true. And, you know, I've been very fortunate to
1: be in this movement in places like, and I want to acknowledge like New York City and like the Bay Area that are overwhelmingly, uh, you know, areas that have overwhelming support for abortion care, for abort- reproductive freedom and justice. So I want to acknowledge my privilege in having the roles that I've had and, and continue to have, you know, doing the work that I do primarily and, uh, and being the face of an organization primarily in states that are overwhelmingly supported of the work that we do. So just want to acknowledge that. But even with that, you know, unfortunately, reproductive health is politicized and it's weaponized. And so, you know, we just, for example, in Essential Access Health, we sued the Trump administration. We, the Title 10 program that we administer in California and Hawaii under the Trump administration, they released rules for the program that were really harmful to individual health that restricted providers from being able to provide the full information to their patients about their pregnancy options without bias. And so we went to court to sue the Trump administration to stop those regulations from taking effect. And that is when for example we really had to look at what our security looked like at our organization we were getting threatening phone calls we were people were writing into our contact form with threatening messages and so we are in a place where you know there are individuals that can self associate as quote unquote pro life but provoke and and spark both words and actions of violence. So that's something that we have to take very seriously. But for me, this is my purpose. I came to acknowledge that very, you know, early on, while there are so many issues that I care about that are near and dear to my heart and just firmly believe in equity and justice, that my my purpose and my path is really centered on this issue. And and that's why I think another part of the important work that the movement is doing now is working to destigmatize abortion, to destigmatize essential health care that one in four people who can get pregnant experience in their reproductive years. So we it's really time that we have to shift the paradigm and destigmatize abortion. It's just part of essential health care that must be available for anyone who would want and need it so that we, when I talk about my work, I do it with pride. I do it from a place of conviction. And so also whether there be someone's family members, or you're sitting on a plane next to somebody, what do you do? tried my best to just share my truth around the work that I do and how important I believe it is. It's in by also recognizing the space that we are in now, where um, there are folks that believe strongly and have and hold very strongly held views in another direction.
0: One of the things that I would love to be able to get clarity on is some of the medical terminology for things like miscarriage, or you know how we address certain health con- conditions through abortion, for example, an ectopic pregnancy. That like is really important to get addressed but it's unclear on the policy side and there's very real consequences to the policy not matching medical terminology do you see a path forward in resolving that like or finding a way to to make it right because there are certain areas that like women's lives are at risk if they don't get this very important care and yet we're not supporting them or able to, I, like, you're in a unique place. So I want, I would love to hear more.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it's a great question. For me, what first comes up is that for people who can get pregnant during their reproductive lives, there's a wide range of experiences or healthcare needs that they might have. And so as a society, just like if somebody has diabetes, any health condition, the moral obligation that we have as a society, the responsibility that we have, is to make sure that people can get the care that they want to need, that that it's affordable, it's accessible, and it's legal to do so. So, unfortunately, we're in a place in the United States of America in 2022 when there are nearly half of the states in this country are positioned to either have flat-out bans on abortion enacted already, or they have severe restrictions that make access to abortion completely unacceptable. Maybe it's legal, but it's not accessible for most people who would be pregnant and and make that choice, or have their restrictions um, held up in court. And what that means is not only that access to abortion care has been at risk, but these other things that you lifted up joy for people who have an ectopic pregnancy or who have miscarriage and they need early pregnancy loss or miscarriage management that could employ the same medical care that is would be reflected in abortion care service. There's also issues when it comes to a very wanted pregnancy that is not viable to continue. And so women's health needs in, in this full range of areas been really threatened and put at risk in these states that have these severe restrictions or bans in place because of the, the slippery slope or the, the connection where providers are scared that they would be, you know, lose their medical license, be fined or imprisoned even to provide the care that their patients need. And You mentioned when we met around 20 years ago, we were marching on Washington for women's lives. We were activating, we were having folks take action. And it just warms my heart that you were inspired to take action and that has kept, kept stayed with you. But part of that action 20 years ago was sounding the alarm bell that our health and rights were at risk. And here we are 20 years later. And unfortunately, the nightmare scenario that we were cautioning about has unfortunately become reality for one in three people who could get pregnant in the United States of America in 2022. Um, It could impact 21 million people's ability to get the medical care that they need. I'm just kind of taken aback a little bit to think, you know, just by our personal reconnection to timestamp that, that 20 years ago, we were in a place of taking action because of what could be and here we are reconnecting at a time
0: when that's as we said that that impact has actually become reality well and your story was different back then you now have a is she a teenager is your daughter a teenager now <laughs> my
1: daughter's 14 she's at uh in ninth grade so in her first year of high school which is staggering to think about I'm sure like many parts of our lives, it feels like just went by quickly. And it feels like it was also a lifetime ago since we first met, right? Like, because time is, is interesting that way. So having a daughter and a teen daughter it's pretty stark to think that she and her generation have fewer rights than we did when we were her age. When in society we're we're supposed to, I know you, Joy, and your work and your personal and community and civic engagement and your activism. And for me, we're so committed to making things better. And if you think about it and take a minute, and you know, and of course the work that I do, I I think about this often, that my daughter in this generation right now has fewer rights than we did. And and you know, there's been progress and in other areas when we think about shifts for lgbtq plus youth and you know and adults in general there it's been progress so it's not comprehensive rewind and pushing and a pushback but one thing that i'm really proud to talk about also is that my 14 year old and i are both engaged in the proposition 1 campaign in california so you talked a little bit earlier about how it can be really confusing in California because there are ballot initiatives that everyday voters are have to contemplate and think about. And in California, we have a simple but really critical proposition on the ballot now that again, I'm proud to be able to work in my professional and volunteer capacity and getting my daughter and my daughter's friends engaged to um, get out the yes on Prop 1. So Proposition 1, seeks to amend the California constitution to have the right to abortion and birth control explicitly in the California constitution. The state constitution has implicit right to privacy, but based on the recent Supreme court decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, they did so by saying that there is no constitutional right to privacy. So Proposition one seeks to protect the right to access abortion and the right to use or refuse birth control for generations to come. So even though we have very comprehensive laws on the books now in California, as we've seen in other states and at the federal level, the tides can turn. And so this is a preventive measure to enshrine these rights, these values, and these fundamental right to bodily autonomy into the California state constitution.
0: This is going to be such an interesting election and see how everything plays out. I'm curious more about your daughter, if you don't mind, because she obviously has a very strong influence in the home. Are you seeing that her engagement and activism is already Sparked and is she on that path?
1: She is, and you know, I think that it's like a, an apple and tree kind of thing in our household, but on her own free will, right? Not forced, but it's just kind of conversations about equity and justice, and also a core value of taking action to support our community and to stand up for what we believe in has been part of our shared experience pretty much since. Zoe was born. She came home from the hospital on election day in 2008 when President Obama was elected, when another proposition campaign I was working on at the time, Proposition 73, or then was it four? We have three parental initiatives in California in a row that sought to require frontal notification for abortion care in California that were all defeated. But there was the final one in that, stri- that string of three ballot initiatives in that, in that area um, was defeated that day as well. And since then, you know, she was with me when we volunteered for Hillary Clinton's election campaign in 2016. And then we marched when we were devastated when President Trump was elected. And so we and volunteered to... So it's really something that she actually self-identifies now as an activist for social justice. She's engaged in volunteer activities at school. She just applied to represent her school at a diversity, equity and inclusion conference for high schoolers. So she's uh, also stated now, of course, as think back to when you were 14, I don't know if you're still, if you're doing what you thought you would be doing at 14, but she wants to be a lawyer that works for social justice and human rights. So I'm so proud of the person she is and the and the young woman she's becoming. And I'm really in awe and inspired to be able to be with her as a witness on her journey. And yeah, and I learn a lot from her as well. You know, part of my role also is, uh, is media and, you know, we have youth programming and so, also seeing her and how she engages with with media and the language that she uses also helps inform our work as
0: well. That's great. So, I think I know the answer. But what is giving you hope right now?
1: Well, if kind of what your nice uh, softball was, you know, the, this generation of young people gives me a lot of hope. I think that they're informed, mobilized, and connected more than ever before and i think that there is a feeling of of responsibility for protecting you know rights moving forward as well as you know environmental justice and work but i think that also what gives me hope is that at least in california and we do work in hawaii as well we can still be the helpers we can still do everything possible to help make sure that Folks know that they have a safe haven, that they have a safe place to go if they can get there, to get the care that they want and need. And I also have to have hope that the future is is brighter. That at the end of the day, that the arc does bend toward justice, and might not be a linear path, but it's a path that we will continue to be on. So you know, and I don't think I think that we're at a moment in time and the reality of the abortion bans and restrictions is not going to be our future. I have have hope by voters in Ireland, in Argentina, you know, there, there's a wave of, it's interesting. And I think in the United States, we have over the past decades thought to think of ourselves and our country as the hallmarks or the standard bearers Mm -hmm. of inspiration of what's possible with a democracy to be able to expand rights. And now we're actually looking for hope and energy in other countries to say, well, you can still make change. So we're going to keep moving forward. Um, We're going to keep organizing and we're going to keep collaborating with folks. I think the other thing that I want to note that gives me hope is something that came out of a negative or something that has been devastating in our country for decades, which is racism. So, you know, I think that in the United States, we've had a national reckoning of and had to name and call out collectively in ways that have have been more urgent and stronger and more organized than ever before to call out the racism in this country and the, the structural racism, the systemic racism that has led to inequities, whether it be economic inequities, inequities in opportunity, as well as inequities in healthcare. And so COVID, of course, has really shined light on the inequities in our healthcare system, for example, that, and now I think they've always been known, but now they can't be ignored anymore. And there's an urgency and I think a shift that's happening around naming and addressing health inequities that is not been the case before. And I think that sometimes you have to make opportunity out of crisis. And I think people are engaged more than ever before on this issue and and recognize that we can't go too far to take away people's rights, that there has to be a balance back. So
0: those are great answers. And I, I listen to myself sometimes thinking as I talk about where I live now, it's, I live in Mexico for those who don't know. And one of the reasons why i feel it's so well serendipitous that i'm here is because there are so many problems that need to be solved and kind of reframing it as an opportunity or a challenge that like okay i see some uh, an area that something can be improved and that ends up driving me and motivating me to action of like okay well we've, there's work to be done Like, no rest for the the weary. And I feel like that is something that drives you. Yeah. (laughs) Well, Amy, I want to thank you so much personally and professionally just for being such an amazing, inspiring woman in healthcare and our industry in general, just even outside of the industry. You're just a great human being. If people want to follow you or work with you or somehow connect with you, where would you point them? Folks are interested in learning about the work that we do
1: at Essential Access. They could go to essentialaccess.org and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And then also if if your listeners are in California, I would say that at this moment in time to go to uh, yes on Prop 1, ca.org and um, learn more about Proposition One. As in California, we have an opportunity to um, knock this one out of the park. If folks know that choice is on the ballot here in California, to to inspire them to open up their ballot and send it in or drop it off. So thanks for for that. And and Joy, thank you for to you. You're an inspiration. Thank you for lifting up voices and stories. And uh, particularly, you know, we, as you said, met as part of a women's group. And thank you for lifting up women's voices, whoever identifies as as a woman. So, thank you.
0: I think I'm going to dig up some of those old photos and post them with your with your release. <laughs> I would love to see them. Yeah, I've got a few. Well, it has been such a pleasure to reconnect with you. Thank you for taking the time and. We'll see you soon. I hope. I hope that right. it another 20 years don't go by before we talk again. Okay, well, it's been a pleasure, Joy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I am truly grateful for you and I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast or maybe leave us a rating or review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All those things help us podcasters out so much. I'm the show's host, Joy Rios, and I'll see you next time.